Welcome to Planet Noun, where it's all about the people, places, things, and ideas that teach us, prompt us to make a difference, and do more with what life presents. Meet today's guest, who always has a funny story to share. I'm Roman Simpson, Jr., because sometimes my father's stuff appears on my on my credit. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to make sure there's a, there's a, you can distinguish <laughs> between the two. my father child support ended up on my credit. I was like, how am I fathering kids that are a year younger than me? Oh, dang. <laughs> come on, child support. They're like, okay. They took it off. <laughs> I'm like, come on now. Look at the age. <laughs> That's Romus, always a vivid storyteller since I've known him. We met Mm, Actually, I don't even remember the year we first crossed paths, but I met him at the home of one of my aunts in California. He's a friend of my cousin's. We ended up in a long conversation after her memorial some years later, and we ended up becoming pals. So he reminded me that I asked him once to come on the show for National Poetry Month. A short time later, after that ask, the world changed with COVID-19 and worldwide stay-at-home orders and lockdowns. But finally, we got a chance to chat virtually right on time to bid adieu to this year's commemoration of the poetic form. Roman Simpson, right here on Planet Noun. I want to say thank you, first of all, for reminding me, because I think we exchanged that email right before everything hit the fan. The quarantine hit, yeah. Yeah. So I think now folks need a reminder of happy things. And even though poetry addresses things that aren't so happy, it could serve as something else to possibly think about. So let's let's go back to the beginning for you. Where would you say your path to poetry started? Started with my mother. My mother was a teacher and my father was a pastor. And so, um, and they come from people in Alabama who speak very formally, very formally, all verb agreements, everything together. So. Um, we should judge other ministers with a very harsh meter, you know? And if you messed up, mom would be like, shut up, shut up. We're telling so, y'all to shut up because y'all were laughing. Yeah, because we would laugh in church at other ministers. Just like we had one minister come, he said, the people were congregating. You're like, oh, congregating. And the Lord was working. And we were having a wonderful time in the spirit. And then we're like, oh, okay, okay. And then he said, we had the people standing on their feet. We were like, your mom was like, don't you say it. <laughs> they feet. <laughs> I was like, ah. So um, so I got that from my mother and my mother my mother would grade her papers and, and she and I would look at her um, teachers editions and I would read poems and she would tell me go in the glossary and find um, strange names and just read those things but so I would read the short stuff because I didn't have the patience for the big short stories and I would read poetry plus at our house my father was a rather conservative minister for a long time, we didn't have TV, we didn't allow rock and roll. So we wrote, and but we always had the treasury of the familiar, encyclopedias, world craft. And by the time I was probably eight, nine years old, we were doing cold poems. My brother had written a novel. Me and my brother Ed were working on a novel. My brother John would do Casey at the Bat for, um, for um, guests. So we would like come out and do these little shows and stuff. And I guess as a, after my mother and father split, that kind of was always in me secretly when I was playing sports and doing stuff. I was always a reader, even though it wasn't popular to be a reader, and especially on that level, you know. Right, because you, you played, what, football in high school? Yeah, football, yeah. yeah so I'm, I'm a linebacker out there quoting um, Sonia Sanchez. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, but let, let me tell you how I first got, I, I was in on the ninth grade and I was, we were bagging in class and I was one of the great baggers at my school and I just couldn't stop laughing and my teacher, she called me up and gave me a referral. And while she was looking for the referral switch, I snatched the book off her desk and put it in my bag, stole the book off her desk, mm-hmm. put it in my locker with all the chicken bones and all the other stuff that was in my locker. <laughs> Chicken bones. Oh yeah, you know we you get fried chicken. You know because you know the cheerleaders would give you boxes. They have fried chicken and you throw the chicken, all types of stuff in your locker. So as um, school was out and we were transitioning into football or made varsity, and before coming into varsity, um, we you have that law there where you're at home for a little while and then the two a day start. And I unloaded my stuff and there was this book, and I'm just nothing to do. I'm looking through the book. 
that book turned out to be the new black poets edited by Dudley Ryan. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I looked, like my mother said, looked in the back and I saw Sanchez and I said, what's a black person doing with the name Sanchez? Mm -hmm. It was Sonia Sanchez. And she spoke to me. I mean, I, I didn't believe that. I couldn't believe that, that the things we were saying could be considered poetry. And there was when you say the things we are saying, you mean the things that like black folks were saying? Yeah, just everyday things could be so eloquent. Her poems were just talk. Like it just it was so accessible. You know, it wasn't like you had to work and they were they were just beautiful. And um there was Gwendolyn Brooks and Nikki Giovanni was barely, you know, wild and I was just looking at these names and I came across all these different so I kept the book all the way through high school. And selling uh, book. This yeah, book you yeah, and I would see Miss Grown when I got back to class, I would see Miss Grown like look for that book and I'd bring. <laughs> and she would be looking for it. We'd be in our reading time and she'd just be looking, what happened? She, and I had stolen it. But um it was it was it was an investment in myself. <laughs> but, but then then when I was a senior, um, Miss Trulinger, I in our house books were sacred. So she loaned me um Alice Walker's Goodnight, Willie Lee and other poems. And I took it home and it disappeared. You know, the book only cost $4.99, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, it was like losing something worth $150. And I was afraid to tell her. And I eventually I told her, I just don't have it. But she said, well, you can make it up to me by writing a poem. And she gave me an A on the poem. And I've been writing ever since. Wow. So what, what was it about uh, poetry that sang to you? What was it about uh, Sonia Sanchez? I know you were saying that she just took everyday things and made it you know, poetic or made you realize that the everyday things that we say and talk about are poetry. Why poetry and not regular, regular prose? I mean, because I had always been reading poetry and I was excited over Poe and his alliteration and his ability to describe things. But Sonia Sanchez stood in the middle of us and not only poeted, but there was space and time and the silences in her poems. Her poems did what they said in our talk. And it was just like, you know, she has a poem called um, um, Summer Words of a Sister Addict. She said, and I, a beginner in your love, say no, I would not be. Oh, that's, um, no, it says, uh, no, Summer Words, but it's about this sister who, um, she's in rehab and she's sitting in this women's group. And, and she talking about, she was mad at her, but she said, I, I got high behind the I'm paraphrasing it. I got high behind the feeling behind my mother, got mad at her, and I got high. It was good, gooder than doing it. Uh, 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 gooder than doing it. Uh, 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 I want to do it again. Uh, 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 I want to do it. He said, and as the sister sits in her silent, remembered high, someone gently leaned forward, asked her, did you ever learn how to hold your mother? And the music of the day, drifts in the room, to mingle with the sisters' young tears, and we all sing. Wow. Wow. Just to really wow. speak to you. Mm -hmm. You know, and of course, as I got into her more, she became one of my great heroes. She, you know, so I'm in high school, and all my heroes are like these female black poets. While you, you know, being a linebacker on the football team. I'm out here <laughs> crunching people, right? Bitch pressing 450 pounds, going crazy, right? But, but secretly, the word had that much power, the power of language, the power of them to say things. I, and then, and as I grew older, I would see those things in the world. Like, I didn't understand Gwendolyn Brooks for a long time. Then, I, then when I fell in love, right, I understood that Gwendolyn was speaking in sound. She was, she was so far advanced, it was sound. And she was just saying things that sounded like love. And I, you know, now she's literal, of course, in what she writes. She's literal, but, but um, I, I was just blown away by how, how beautiful and elegant. She's like, she's like a nerd who's very, you know, you know, anybody who's nerdy on the inside would love her dedication to the twist of sounds. You know, and you know the twist of sounds. She's wonderful. That's why she's the first black person to win a Pulitzer. And it's amazing, she won for a novel, Mob Market, but really is um, maybe this country's, I think she and Robert Hayden, the greatest poets 
I've ever heard. Now, what's one of your favorite lines from her or favorite poems? From her? Um, for there is no wider whiteness than this one, an insurance man's shirt on its morning run. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, I always tell my brother that because my brother's an insurance agent. <laughs> There is no whiter whiteness than this one. And, and, and she, you know, just so many things she said, run. Uh, just, I, I can't even quote her. She's so wonderful. But um, you, you, you read her, after a while, you read her not only for her stories, but for the technical ability. And that's what I tell other poets. You have to practice craft. Gwendolyn Brooks is not only talent, but she's exquisite craft. And, the, and there's joy in craft. It's not just something you exercise. There's joy, like in the chant, like in long division. Mm -hmm. You know, you get that, um, like in long division, you know, well, well, check this out. You get the- um, Right back some bad memories. I'm sorry, go ahead. We <laughs> <laughs> know you get that repeating remainder mm -hmm. in long division, but if it goes long enough and it chants 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 and it chants, you find out that you, it becomes something else, you know? In, and because um, you're whirling towards something, you find out you're only being, and that's somehow how her poetry is, and just in the, in the click, click, and the cock, 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 cock of the sound. You know, so that, that's just me. Other people may have a different experience with it, but mm -hmm. that's what I like about it. Did you find that in high school that was accepted, or did you feel like you had to hide that, your, your love for poetry for whatever reason? Or was well, it, you know, were you just, you know, Roma's the football guy and the poet? Well, you know, everybody always knew me as a big old smart kid, right? They used to say that I was like air. I used to call the signals in the huddle. Read, read, on one. So he sounds like an airplane pilot, coach. We got to get a crack, a crack, left, read. Read, 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 everyone. Read, 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 you know? So it was, but uh, um, but they used to, when I played in Bakersfield, they used to call me Jesse Jackson. I mean, you always saying things, man. But you, but you know, but Liz, I, I was a brother, you know what I'm saying? And they mm -hmm. just took me as somebody they could go to when, with their words, I, I had a wonderful friend, a uh, big old tackle in Bakersfield, and um, Jermaine was a wonderful big old, six foot five, 300 something pounds, built like a railroad spike, right? It's one of the sweetest people. And the coach used to say, Shug couldn't read very well. And um, the coaches would be like, Shug, you just go get the ball. And when the coaches told him one day, they would make those comments, and I knew they heard Shug, we'd be in the huddle. And the coach said, Shug, tell you what, you know, I hope somebody likes like some human meat after you stop playing football. That's all you are, some meat. I mean, they would just say- that, that fell out of the coach's mouth. Oh. To oh, his face. You know, that's one of the more benign things that- Wait, out. huh? Well, there were guys walking around in Bakersfield with black eyes and bruises and all types of stuff. And it was a culture of abuse that I had never seen. And my brother was playing at, and played at UCLA. And he told me never work, play for coaches like that. And, and it was it was a source of pride to have been beaten up by the coaches. <laughs> Actually, to have been beaten up. So they're talking about Suge in this way. Mm -hmm. Suge is a big old sensitive brother from Wasco, California, a little farming town. And, is it uh, Roscoe? Yeah, Wasco. Yeah, oh, Wasco. Oh, I've never heard Wasco. of Wasco. Okay. And well, there were prisons out there, but he Suge thought Bakersfield was the biggest city in the world. You know? Wow. So, <laughs> show you where they were coming from. <laughs> So, but, but should, I saw him in that huddle. I was his friend and I saw him glancing at me and there were tears in his eyes. He was embarrassed. So after practice, we're sitting there taking off our gear. He comes to me, he says, um, he says, Simpson, I said, what's up? Should you say, um, you think you could help me with my words? I say, anytime, big shit, anytime you want it. So, um, so, Suge was only there for about a semester and a half, you know, mm -hmm. and then it was back to Wasco in the infinite skies and fields. Mm -hmm. But I went on and I, and I, I looked up Suge last year and I found a bunch of sugar from Wasco but never found Suge. Mm. And then I went to the place where we don't want to go, the obituaries, and there was Jermaine Sugar. Wow. I was 13 years too late. Wow. Yeah, but Big Suge was a wonderful dude. Wonderful dude, just country boy. Shows you how wonderful some people can be when they're simple, simple cat. But those are the people you love writing about. We immortalize shit, and I tell his story because mm -hmm. the world needs to know that um, it just just needs to know, you know. Mm 
Mm-hmm. What do they need to know most about him? They need the fact to know that he's a gentle giant, or he's just a person. Yeah, person, but he was a beautiful, warm person. And um, Suge and I were talking. Suge would talk about playing in the dark in the fields in Wasco mm-hmm. and running out there. He was truly a country kid. He mm-hmm. might as well have been raised in Mississippi 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Warm and hey, and just cool. He's just a wonderful, not a, not a hint of malice in him anywhere. Wow. wow. Not a hint. Just a big old dude. Wonderful type of guy. See you from what? He's 6'5". He see you from way and start grinning when he'd see you from way off. Mm-hmm. Excited to see you. So uh, that was Shiv. So it's a wonderful cat. Football wow. would break your heart. It's a heartbreaking sport. <laughs> but one sounds like you have fond memories of your time with him now. Oh, yeah. He was a wonderful guy. I'm glad I got to know him. I wrote, I'm glad I got to know you, Big Shiv. Glad I got to know you. I'll never forget him. Never forget. And everybody else who knows me said, yeah, man, Shiv was wonderful. It's wonderful, but he wasn't a college student. Mm-hmm. He wasn't anything like that. You know? But he wasn't a piece of human meat either. No, what he was wonderful. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was in a little over his head with the academics, but um, but they didn't have to get him in there and put him in that abusive culture. Um, mm-hmm. I think that I think should have never been treated badly. He said he had never been treated badly. Yeah, he'd never been treated badly before he came there. Wow. You never had people talk to him they would, and he didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you could see him confused. Uh, you spoke, because, you know, when you're a player, your coaches are like your parents. Right. And right. you're in the care of them. If they're not just and beautiful, it can really wreck you. They have such power and such responsibility for you. You know, and if you're trying to ball and you're dreaming through that, through that tunnel, they stand at every gate. And for them to stand there and make the price of them knowing you ridicule. And um, you could just see, I, I knew he would, he had, he had been always handled gently by his people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so wow. I, I, don't, I, I don't think it was a good experience for Spring Shield. Wow. Mm-hmm. That is kind of sad. Sad. Yeah, yeah but, um, but those are the cats you write about. So um, he, how many poems does he appear in, or people who are kind of like him or remind you of him? If you could put a number to it, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I, um, sometimes I write about maybe a few. There are a few. Well, I think when I write about love, people like that are in it. Not specifically, but the the aggregate of them kind of create that. You know, because especially like I wrote this poem about it called. Um, that man loved that little militant woman. Mm-hmm. And I was hosting a reading in Long Beach and they showed up and they were super militant. Wanted to burn L.A. lay down and kill everybody and all this other stuff. Right? What year was this? This, this, this? this was in the 90s. Like, before or after the riots? <laughs> uh, no, after. After. And, and I was like, whoa. So, she, but, but she had, they had six children. And I think she was pregnant with their sixth child. And she was talking so militant. But her husband was standing there with her, and all the other kids were in the car, right? Very well behaved. But um, they're in the car, and um, I looked at him, and he was looking at her. And I looked at him again, and he was in love. Why, even with her just talking and popping off? Oh, uh, yeah. There was something he saw beyond all the rhetoric and the, and the franticism. He was really in love. And I could see it in his eyes. And then she did, he reached and pushed her hair back over her ear. And, and he touched her. Then she, and eventually she went to check on the kids in the car, right? Mm-hmm. And we were sitting there. And he said, man, you should have seen her at the Spoken Word Festival. He was telling me she bought the truth. Man. He was just caught up looking in the air, thinking about her. And I was like, wow. And that's what's wonderful about the world. Mm-hmm. Sometimes... The world opens up, right? And if you don't have your poetic head on, you sit right through it. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about there in the evening, in the incipient evening, right? With all this, the windows, the buildings going dark, and the windows becoming bright downtown. And this love story, these people, and this brother, I mean, so in love with this woman, carrying a sixth child, and just, I mean, like, not even giddy, just, solemn in love 
Mm-hmm. It was very cool, very good. Now, I want to show this. I, I used to never do love poems, right? Mm-hmm. You got so many brothers mad from stage, you know? Baby, but this was for the ladies. <laughs> you know, all that crap, you know? I, like you know, do that I just thought mic. it was corny, you know? I was like, wait a second, we already poming. You're already on stage. The ladies don't like you anyway. So the mac is kind of an abuse, you know, these, this mass macking from the mic. You know, that's how open mics are the poetry world. Poetry is like becoming a church of God and Christ preacher. You just wake up one morning and you it. No education, no nothing. Just decide. I'm off crack. Now I'm a preacher. So, so that's how a lot of cats, what they do is they come to these readings and they see that they see it's an open call for the mic. The next week, he got a poem because there's some fine sisters in the audience. Mm-hmm. He just wants to, he wants the spotlight. He's, poetry is secondary. But I, I have a poem I call Bus Poem. What's it called? Bus Poem. Bus Poem, okay. Yeah, Bus Poem. And I was coming to school one morning in Long Beach, and there's this little brother standing there at the bus stop. Little short brother, too. Mm-hmm. Trying to be all hardcore, you know, a little curl, all sagging. And I walked around, I said, what's up, brother? He was like, what's up? I was like, hey, I was like, hold on, brother. I was like, brother, hold on now, hold on. So, um, so um, the bus is coming way down the street. You can mm-hmm. see heaving in and out of traffic coming up seven. And um, he runs to McDonald's and almost and gets to McDonald's and almost misses the bus. We sit down. The bus is crowded. We're together on the bus. Mm-hmm. And I and he's holding it, but he doesn't need it. And I said, mm, I said, I asked him why isn't he eating? Turns out he he's bringing it to some girl. Mm-hmm. And when I asked him, she asked me, he said, she didn't ask me for this. And he, he kept adjusting his language. He said, I just, he's like, I'm bringing to some chick. I mean, this girl I know. He didn't even want to disrespect her, you know? Mm-hmm. And he said, um, I, when I asked him, I said, she asked you to bring her some pieces. She didn't ask me this. He's like, I just, you know, thought that maybe, you know, she likes something to eat or something. And I felt the magic. I was like, oh, wow. He's sprung. <laughs> him, him and his. What's up? <laughs> yeah, doing his best. Doing his best. Remember, my mother told me never go to a girl's house empty-handed. Mm-hmm. If it's a candy bar or something, let her know she's special. And he had his McDonald's, bringing it to her. I smiled at him. He said, "I said, brother, she." He said, "She nice to me, you know." I said, "Brother, mm-hmm. I, I know." But, at, but I always tell when I do the spill of the phone, mm-hmm. I said, when he got off the bus, and the bus moved on, and I'm looking out that gray window, watching him going across the street into that neighborhood. I put something in the universe, a prayer, a power, a request, hoping that whoever she was, that she would receive him. Because some people say they want love. We all colloquialize or chat about how we want love, right? Mm-hmm. Love, I can't wait for love. But sometimes love comes, and it sits there, and it's the end and the beginning of all things. Hmm. And then we find it's not us. It's not love. It's not ready. It's us who's not ready. Mm-hmm. We've just been talking. We've been yapping. And I hope whoever she was, she was ready, because that once in a lifetime was coming down the street. Wow. You know, he, wow. Was, he was really, he really like. So I would see him afterwards, and he'd stay away from me because I'd smile at him. If you try to be hard, you just move real quick. <laughs> I, said, oh, I just want to go up and hug him. Ah, it's so wonderful. I want to thank you for giving me the poem that has lasted over the years. Mm-hmm. In that one little moment, he was vulnerable. Yeah, indeed. Vulnerable and beautiful and doing his best. And oh, we're wonderful when we do our best. Mm-hmm. He was simply yes, doing yes. his best for her. Oh. It moves me. Mm-hmm. You know, Everyday moments. Every day, you know, and I, I used to, I believe in this thing called the web of the world, right? Where we're mm-hmm. all intersected at some point. Right. So all of us are kind of balancing out one another. And I was fortunate enough to sit beside the man that day who was the custodian of our humanity. Wow. In his hands, all of us. Mm-hmm. In his hands. Wow. You know, that little cat, because he was being so honest. Mm-hmm. So earnest. <laughs> Honest and earnest. You know, just beautiful. You're just beautiful. I'm like, go ahead, bro. I ain't never <laughs> hoped for somebody so much in my life. <laughs> Let it work. So have you always had that power of observation to be able to pluck out this, these moments or realize that, you know, 
this moment is something special and I might want to write about this. You, you know what I think? I think an artist has, there's a requisite distance that has to be in place. Like James Taylor, the writer, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the singer, you know, um, James Taylor's songs are about here, but he's never here with you. Hmm. Mm -hmm. James Taylor is in the crowd, but he's never of the crowd. Well, as we say, he's watching the carnival from the river, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that you have to kind of almost live like that. You need to, you know, when I came to Long Beach, I have friends and they want to roll with you. I said, no, but I need to roll along because I need to experience the city on my terms. Mm -hmm. I need to establish some things with it. And um, especially for my writing, I need to know its metaphors. Derek Walcott said that none of us are greater than the landscape we live in. So essentially, the, all of our measurements, like we'll say, um, are you, you and DC may say, oh, that's as, as bright as the whatever, but it'd be something in DC. Or I may say, no, that's as, that's as bright, that's as long as Hope Boulevard in Pomona or something. But we all come to be constituent to the landscape we're in, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, and I, I think that with um, poetry, for you to do that, you have to have that requisite distance there has to be like a moat between you so you can observe. And even though Patricia Smith says, put your lens on the skin and move it around, which is true, but you have to be able to, to gain, to separate yourself before you do that. So you can tell the stories. You think that that makes a difference between someone who can pluck out those moments and someone who gets too involved? Yeah, well, I, I, I think that people, I think that we, we, I think that some moments are ready made. The inauguration. Some people want to do the inauguration. Some people want to do coronavirus. Or some people want to do the grand love home. All those things. But I think the things that you have to be observing for are the little man on the corner or the kid with his arm around his friend or, or the old woman who looks out the, the screen and smiles at you and tucks her head back in. Those are the things where you have to be on point because the city is giving you things constantly. And if all you're gonna write about is stuff we read in the history books in high school, you're gonna miss out on, on a very intimate history. That's what I want people to know, an intimate history of our people. Not only that we were involved in protests and did all this and that, but the fact that we were tired and lonely and sometimes in love and sometimes very happy and sometimes brand new and unsure. The story of especially black people needs to be told as a human story. We're and, often um, not seen as human. Yeah, yeah. So that so yeah, so that we're seen as a we're individuals too. Sometimes we are we're lonely, sometimes we're we are on fire. Sometimes we're just and like like the, I love that song in the Wiz. He says, What shall I do if I could suddenly feel? And then once again, but what I feel is, and then he says something wonderful. He says, I would laugh, I would cry, I would smile. And he says something wonderful. He said, I might lay back for a while. I'm like, my God. <laughs> he said, He may lay back for a while. I said, That's it. He just may sit back and look. And I'm like, That's what we want people to know about us. That sometimes we're just, we just we just beautiful in our very basic. But I ain't got to do nothing grand. Just be you. You know, I always tell people about poetry and blackness, right? They said, mm -hmm. brother, I got challenged at a reading once. Brother, why are you doing these poems? Um, where's your revolutionary poems? I said, brother, if you understand that this country has contended forever that black people don't contribute anything, the fact that we love and embrace each other is revolutionary. You don't have to write revolutionary poems. You don't have to put a gun in your hand. If you greet one another, if we love our children, if we write and produce fine art and paint and scope, if we do all these things that accentuate this, this spherical humanity we have, then we know that we are truly revolutionary. Not in the, in the rhetorical sense, but in a, in a very actual feet on the ground sense. And, um, that's what, that's what I said. So, but you have to revamp what blackness is to you. Blackness what is, is, oh, sorry, go ahead. That was going to be my yeah, next question. Yeah, well, black, 
blackness, we know that blackness is politics because we're African-American and blackness is a consciousness we subscribe to. But once you get there, expand it. I always tell people this, what's the black people get mad at me about? If you can expand that consciousness to, um, let's say Clarence Thomas, who is seen as the Benedict Arnold, I've heard him go on all types of stuff. But if you can expand that to embrace Clarence Thomas, if you can understand that, I tell brothers the, the metaphor of the Cadillac. I said, we got four brothers in the Cadillac. We disagree over many things. Do you put a brother out because he disagreed? So you disagree with Clarence Thomas on affirmative action. You've never read another thing he's done. I'm not saying I'm a fan and an advocate. I'm just saying for community's sake. We throw the baby out with the bathroom. We have a black Supreme Court justice that you guys are calling a sellout. Who in the hell else in our community comes with those qualifications? And he wants to mentor black young black men. And people turn their backs on him. He cried on an interview because, because he, he doesn't have the possibility of doing because we don't let him do that. And I'm like, are we better off because he disagreed with one thing and we throw out everything else? I said, I said we, we have to stop being absolute like that hmm. and understand he's entitled to his opinion. You know, I'm not a Republican. I'm not anything. But if someone... Um, um, supports Trump. I don't support Trump, but if someone does, it that make them not your brother? Mm-hmm. Well, know? there seems to be a thread. I, I don't want to. I don't want to make it seem like the whole community believes this, but just you know, if you take a dive into social media, that's how it would seem that that person would be put out the Cadillac. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's, it's everything is like TV. Um, People want, just like even with poetry, and I wrote a poem about some woman who gets beat by her husband, right? Mm-hmm. And in the, in the end, they want the woman to kill the husband and do all this other stuff, but she doesn't. We, we kind of want things to be black and white. We want there to be heroes and villains, mm-hmm. heroes and villains. And we, we can't accept that there's a whole myriad of choices in between, that you can be some of this and some of that. In essence, you have a right to your diversity and all this diversity under the African umbrella is what makes us wonderful. But they all want us to be monolith. You know, you have to be this and that, you know, if you like this, you know, even among writers, black sci-fi writers, why would a Negro be writing that fantasy? Why not? Because they want to. That's all all the reason they need. They want to. (laughs) Listen, I got challenged for writing children's literature. I said, we have children, right? What was the reason for that challenge, though? What was the reason for that challenge? Because um, I, I did some children's literature. Brothers in the back, I should have known because they were back there with black glasses on. <laughs> and it, it was at a, it was at this all oh, there was a, it was at a college, so there were a lot of different types of people. And they came to me after brother, brother, brother. I guess they were from the BSU. But the scene, the plight about people, the situation we got in, brother. Why did you um? Why did you read some revolutionary poems? This and that. And I said, brother, um, you don't think children's lit? I said. This is a country that claims our children aren't even cute, are non-existent. I said, don't you think our children mean? And then I, I pulled him aside. I said, don't you ever at a reading come to me and challenge me over something that's stupid without talking, without wondering what it is. But uh, uh, yeah, I said, brother, we have children. I said, should we all be um, Dr. Kringa's introduction to black studies at four years old? <laughs> Not age appropriate. Not quite age appropriate. Yeah, yeah. I said, brother, I said, don't you think our children deserve to be innocent till they grow into their politics? I told them the story of my mother. My mother said she grew up in the South among racism, apartheid in the South. Mm -hmm. She said they were aware of it, but um, but because they were um, but the adults dealt with that. Their job was to play and be cousins and have sleepovers and eat and sleep and be hugged. That was their job. They didn't let, that's why Dr. King got so much flack when he involved children in, in the movie. Mm-hmm. Because people are like, no, we're supposed to be a hedge. You don't put children on the front line because this is not their, first of all, it's stealing their childhood. We should not politicize our children. Their job is to be children. So, um, so that's what I told the brothers. Brothers, ah, oh, brother, you know, they, 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 they're holding on their militant thing. I'm like, no, nah, but that's what I believe. So you may find me someplace else doing children's poetry. Uh, you know, I, I think it's neat. <laughs> mm-hmm. I say, I say, hmm? What are some other things that um, 
that you say, because you just, you reminded me of uh, one of my friends. We have discussions about this all the time. She is, I think she's grown in her support for, for the current president. And, you know, her ideas are not necessarily popular, especially mm-hmm. if you put them on social media. Actually, what she was telling me is that she is reluctant to put those ideas on social media because people will come for her. And I mean, I know that's true. I don't necessarily agree with, you know, her politics, but we have conversation and we disagree, but we're both still in our Cadillacs. You know what I think, Liz? I think sometimes Black people who identify with Trump and who give him a pass on a lot of things, that's right. If you identify with him, you like him and you like his politics, but giving him a pass on some of the behavior when you come from an oppressed people is, um, I wonder why you're doing that. Right, right. Why would you be in denial? Why would a guy say that white supremacists were decent people and you as a black person stand with him? Why would, you know, why would he be anti this? And, and um, why would he have a history of not renting the blacks and all these other things and um, call African, African countries H-hole countries, you know, and all this other stuff. And you find some way to forgive that. And I'm like, why are you so forgiving even at the peril of being ostracized by your own people. Mm-hmm. You know, I can understand that the man was righteous and he was doing something and you were standing on right. But mm-hmm. if somebody did that to you in your personal life or treated you, you'd be offended. So right. why is he above beyond reproach? And I just think that we have people in our community who are, um, there's a lot of self-hate. And that's why when, you know, understanding Understanding my own philosophy, even under the umbrella of Africa, of blackness, there's room for self-haters. I always tell people in the parthen and the voices that we exist in, everyone's allowed to speak. You can say some some opinions are BS, but you can't say they can't speak. That's why I draw them out. Yeah. You know? So yeah, you the marketplace of ideas. Get a catch uh, idiot and he's stupid. Mm-hmm. And he's and he's got a lot of internal hate and a lot of slave stuff and a lot of stuff talked to him about him being ugly and our people being sick that he's that that he's taken to heart but he can speak it yeah because our, our our voices are sacred what we say is not but our voices are sacred so um so yeah yeah uh, I, I i know bro, bro, brothers do that brothers do that sometimes brothers want to attach to it some brothers just want to be different mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know what it is everybody has their different reasons but i think that if you attach to somebody who seems to be not a proponent of black people. Uh, you know, it's just like, I had a homegirl, right? Mm-hmm. A friend of mine, we talk about music in every group, Air Supply. I like Air Supply. You know, I like, I'm a great Anne Murray fan. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a, one of her biggest fans, you know? I like this and that. I said, well, what about the Isley Brothers? She's like, oh, this and that. What about, I said, what about what? Oh, about Barbara? Everybody she countered with. And I was like, why are you countering? We're not even talking competitively. Mm-hmm. We're just talking about music, but you are exclusively across the, you know, this line. I can't say she was across the line, but she was creating a line that wasn't mm-hmm. there. Yeah, you know, I'm like, um, why are we, why are you responding like that? As if um, somehow what I'm saying is so wrong and offensive. I love the Isley Brothers. I love Luther. Mm-hmm. I love Anita. I love Whitney. I love Gladys Knight. I love Randy Crawford, Al Rope, you know, all, mm-hmm. all these people. So, uh, but why is there always this, this counterpart? I don't know, but, you know, that's kind of where their politics come from. It's, it's, it's just rooted in some type of trauma. You, but, but then if you talk to them, this, they, won't, they won't recognize where Black people have come from. They won't deal in the history, but they want to deal in, I'm like, how can you deal in current politics and not deal in the history of politics? the social history, social political history of this country. Mm-hmm. But you want to just, you know, I said, I just find that to be disingenuous. Like you're picking and choosing. Let's go Did from you. there to poetry in the time of Corona. I don't know about you, but I... I can't wait till life gets back to normal, but I am afraid that life will never get back to what it was before, if even that was considered normal. Because we ain't, we ain't been right since 9-11, and before that, I'm sure it was something before that that changed the way we behave. 
you, you know, you know, this time it's kind of reminded me of there's a cat named Giorgio Di Chirico, who's a surrealist painter, and um, he has a, a painting called Melancholy on a Melancholy Street or something. And it's a little girl. She's in this empty kind of um, street, and with these arches on this building, arches are dark, and she's has a stick and she has a, like a hoop, and she's running and playing with a stick. You may have seen this. But at the end of the street, out of view, there's a shadow. And um, I remember seeing that in high school, and that was kind of always was such a. But these streets kind of remind me of it. Mm. They remind me of the the emptiness. I was out the other day, and and things were just really empty. And it's kind of like, um, you know, you don't want to have that sense of foreboding. But um, but. But it's, it's, it's unsettling when people, June Jordan says, nobody riding the roads today, but still I hear the living rush far away from my heart. Nobody meeting on the streets, but I rage from the crowded overtones of emptiness. Nobody laughing anymore, but I see the world split up and twisted like open stone. Nobody riding the roads today, but I hear the living rush far away from my heart. You know, and it's just like that in the cities, man. Mm-hmm. People are scant here and there. And, the, and those who are there are rushing. The only people are like the people who have no choice, but you see people rushing to and from there. They're going and coming. Right. Like there's no time to stop. Hey. So, but the, 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 the images are, are vivid. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to Definitely. hear some of the art that's going to come out of it. You know, um, somebody's coming out with an anthology I got word of. They oh, sent okay. an invitation to an anthology of Corona poems, and um, and I, I think I may contribute. Like you contributed to this one. Remember this? Voices from the Word Market. All right, that was good. You got it, and you signed it, and you said, I, I can't remember where this was. Was this at UCLA? I think there was, it was at UCLA. Was at the UCLA Book, the LA Times Book Festival. Yes. Yeah. That is right. You signed it to Liz. Thanks for coming. And I think you wrote something else. And then you put Romus, damn it. <laughs> He's not what it looks like. Oh. Liz, in that book, um, there's a poem called, um, called um, And They Sat There Waiting. Oh, uh huh. Yeah, see, I, think that, um, I think that was one of the ones you read. I think you read that one. And there's another one in there called uh, On Our Sixth Anniversary. anniversary? Mm-hmm. Now, now, that poem has been in Kalaloo. Okay. That poem has been published a bunch of places. And um, from a sister who told me her story, that um, her husband, and, and, but, but, the, but the one, and they sat there waiting. What I like about that poem is how quiet it is. And before that poem, I wasn't a quiet writer. Okay. What kind of writer were you then? I, well, I was... My poems were loud and raucous, mm-hmm. you know, da, 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 da. but that poem is very, I think it happens in the afternoon and it's very, and you get a sense of that in the poem, the quiet afternoon. It's very, it does what it says. And I think that's, that was kind of a pivotal point in me writing is just kind of, it kind of meanders mm-hmm. and just kind of, kind of like a wave. He kind of walks and talks. I said it evenly like an early Catholic guitar. It's just kind of so I'm, I'm kind of proud of that poem. That was a they cool sat one. There waiting. So he was a man without a car, frugal and inexact as the reality of bus schedules. I love that because catching the RTD back in the day. Yeah. Well, well see, see Liz, that's what's wonderful about art. Mm-hmm. You, you never tie up a poem because people attach their themselves to it. You leave these open spaces they can sit in they're just like the bus depot there is, is sometimes it's in Cleveland, mm-hmm. sometimes in New York, sometimes it's in LA. In my head, I know where it is with me, but it's with everybody, it's a different space. And that's why you never tie things up. Always, always invite the reader to come sit in the seat. You know? That's part of poetry's magic. Yeah, but I, 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 think that's in, you, I think that's in just writing the moment. Writing the moment, write the moment. Because we all have similar moments. And um, you know, just to see that Latino couple. And I watched them. And just playing a game with them in my head. I said, I wonder who they are. And, uh, and, just, and I'm sitting there just looking, right? 
and there was a Coke between them. I said, okay, let's see. I said, who's going to drink the Coke first? Who's going to drink the Coke first? And they were, um, and he picked it up and drank, and it was strong. He was like, let's do that. And I remember thinking, that must be some McDonald's Coke, because it was <laughs> it cut, you know? And then, and then she picked it up, and she drank. And then he started, to, he had his feet out, and he was just sitting there. They were so relaxed. And he's just talking to her. And uh, he was just talking. And she sat there, and she put her hands in her face in her hands and she turned her face to see him and he was just sitting there looking at her in his Spanish slowly and there was a little silence and I said wow she's beautiful and he reached and he touched her face and she closed I said oh wow here we go a moment <laughs> city is doing it again <laughs> a moment so um hmm. what so because it's National Poetry Month, what is what would be one of your favorite pieces to share for National Poetry Month? Oh, I don't know. It depends on what you want to hear. Mm. Um, let's see. It doesn't necessarily have to be about love. Something quiet. One of your quiet ones that kind of plucks out those moments that, that you like to capture. Oh, let me see. I like that poem. That's a good one. Um, I think bus poem is pretty quiet. Bus poem. Um, um, let me see. Um, God, I have so many poems, Liz. It's like <laughs> to pick, you know, I have 60 pairs of shoes. I try to pick a pair of shoes, you know? <laughs> you just, uh, okay. <laughs> but you end up wearing the same shoes every day. Right. <laughs> but, um, wow, I, I think that's one of the quieter poems. That, and they sat there waiting. That's super quiet. And, um, Oh wow! There's just so many. There's so many. Yeah, but I, I like the. I I think that poem is well written too. It's a mm -hmm. cut above some of the other things I've written. But um, but then I I, I like bus poem. Sometimes mm -hmm. when I perform it, I get lost in it. I, I'll do bus poem for you. Oh okay. Okay. Bus poem. So get my hat. <laughs> Turn to the side. <laughs> You've already heard the spill for it, right? Mm -hmm. About the kid who um, the brother at the bus stop. Who, who who was in love. So this is the poem, right? Oh, right. Get it right. I was on the bus this afternoon, just riding, letting the blues pass into air, letting the streets take me to places I've never been. And among those people, those smiling shadows boarding and unboarding, the children hiding in their mother's skirts, the old men smelling of whiskey dreaming in gray, the young men dreaming of sherbet and rest, the sisters tacked to one another for safety, gold glistening in the gray window, the lovers in their universal privacy, exchanging kisses that make us remember ourselves in August. <clears throat> and today I've been there before, I'm sure. A little man, an inconspicuous, a slight wind below our shoulders with nervous eyes and a face far too clear, a countenance far too dear and wide, to be tough, his sagging khakis, no expenditure, no deterrent to make anyone fear, his infant face, his ready smile, his street-refined taste, a malt liquor and the lamplight herb, posthumous, gradually sweet, gave no nerve ruffle, no sleeve and caught no eye for his feigned hellish tendencies. He was too slight a man, too light a gait to his walk, too long an eyelash to be mean, too small, too plain to be seen. And he sat next to me, trying to be tall in his seat, his futile effort to match the pillar he should be, leaving him low, his fists so cotton, his lisp so unforgiving, the regret he'll always know. And with all his strength he sat, uncomfortable soft, half done bending with the bouncing bus, he had a bag from McDonald's, a warm bag that flavored the air, that grilled the afternoon, then served it unaware. And he held it tight, a treasure of some sort, on such a sunny afternoon, a day exclusive with people, women and vendors haggling at the port, a vibrant moment of transit, and among all the long yawns, the lovers talking in twos, the entering and exiting their pastels, carving kisses out of red, their succulent deep-eyed dawn. But among even them, 
the pimps, the pushers, the half users, the children, the daughters with their elegant fathers cut down and fell. Here is a man with a treasure, something special, something heavy. I said, smells good. He said nothing. I said again, smells good. How do you not eat it now to so warm the fries, I'm sure? Heavenly. He said, it is not for me. It is for my girlfriend. I, I, I mean, this girl I know, she ain't mine or nothing. I'm just going to see her. I, I, I mean, just to visit her. I said, sisters need to ask you to bring, she asked you to bring her some food. Sisters need to stop. She know we ain't got no money. He said, she didn't ask me for this. I just, you know, thought that maybe, you know, she would like something to eat or something. I say, she must be a hell of a sister for you to be bringing her McDonald's out the blue. He say, she cool, she sweet, she nice to me, you know? And I said, brother, I know. And I smiled at this brother bringing this sister gifts. A prince in concrete, discreet, fragile, laboring in the simplest of ceremonies. Such small diamonds on the bus, weeds flowering into beauty, this self-professed gangster, in love, odd, beautiful, human. Atypical, that's bus poem. Thank you for listening to Planet Now, where it's all about the people, places, things, and ideas that teach us, prompt us to make a difference, and do more with what life presents. Now, you've been listening to Romus Simpson, one who chronicles life and Black history through everyday poetic moments. I'm Liz Anderson, host of the Planet Now podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're also on SoundCloud. And please stop by Apple Podcasts and rate the show. Thanks again for stopping by. Until next time, take care. Thank you.